And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The U, the new Miami, the new Miami, the new Miami, surge, surge, the new Miami, the new Miami, the new Miami, surge, the surge. It's a pain thing when we walk through with the U, ain't no bark, dude. Straight dog, when we bring the fight. Ain't scared of no bright. Welcome back to Wide Right, brought to you by DirecTV Stream. Get your TV together with the best of live and on demand. Learn more at directtv.com i'm manny navarro miami hurricanes beat writer it is tuesday september 21st 2021 and tonight i'm talking about a one and two miami hurricanes football team following saturday's 38 17 loss to michigan state at home fans are deflated people are upset they want manny diaz fired they want blake james fired it is chaos in coral gables once again after anarchy just 27 games under Manny Diaz. And, and that voice, of course, is Carlos uh, Lito, who is uh, co-hosting with me again on the show. Carlos, of course, from the MIA All Day podcast, my co-host as well at Onside Radio before when we were doing shows for Onside Radio. Carlos, I know this has to hurt you as a fan, uh, but comically, I want to know, what did you do during the fourth quarter as Michigan State was putting Miami away? Were you taking shots with every Michigan State touchdown? What were you sort of doing uh, Saturday as this thing was was dwindling? Listen, man, if I would have taken a shot every time Michigan State scored in that fourth quarter, I would have blacked out and I probably would have gotten alcohol poisoning. So I did not do that, thankfully. Um, what I did do was when I got to 31-17, I threw my hat across my backyard, jumped in my pool with my clothes on and told everybody not to talk to me for the next hour. <laughs> and how did that work out? Did they, they give you the silent treatment as you asked or how were you how were you treated? Uh, my daughter told me, uh, hey, can we play some basketball on the pool? And I was like, all right, cool. Never mind. <laughs> you got over it quickly then. I got over it quickly. You know how it is with girls, man. When your daughter comes at you and asks for something, it, it, your anger at whatever it is that's going on around you melts away. It, it, it's, it's been an interesting, I want to say, 72 hours since, you know, this game ended. And, you know, everybody on social media has basically just decided that it's time for Manny Diaz to be fired. And, you know, I, I did a story. I wrote a column on Saturday after the game when I got home about how in some ways I feel like, you know, part of what's happened here to Miami these last five games where they've they've basically uh, just shit the bed. Right. There's no other way to describe it. Going one and four. Um, I, I feel like in a lot of ways. Manny Diaz set himself up for this. And the, the only reason I'm starting with this, with this sort of angle, Carlos, is it's hard to be a head coach and it's hard to be a first-time head coach in a pressure cooker like Miami. And, and the reason I say Manny set himself up for this is, uh, you know, he, he's, he sort of made De'Ara King, you know, Kobe Bryant, Allen Iverson, Michael Jordan. He kind of put everything on De'Ara's shoulders. And... When you do that, I think in some ways you force the rest of the team to sort of look at that guy to be the savior for everything. And, and that's what I saw on the sideline in the second half of that game. Miami was down 17 to seven 
Derek goes to the locker room to get that shoulder looked at. And, and you could see it on the side of all the players. Is he going to get back in time? What are we going to do? What's happening? You know, it, it was like, and I was looking through my binoculars from, from the press box. Like, this is comical to me. Like, yes, De'Aaron King is your best player. But at what point did he become the be-all, end-all of hope for this team? And I think in a lot of ways, I don't want to say that poisoned the well for Miami, but I certainly think there are a lot of players that emotionally, uh, if De'Aaron and the offense aren't rolling, they're not playing well. And I think it kind of rubs off on everybody else. Am I, am I seeing too much into this? Do no, you- you're right, because as a fan, it happened to me too. When I saw him go to the locker room, I told my wife, okay, that's it, it's over, the game's done. We're, that guy is the offense, because you know why? Last year, we got so used to him being the entire offense and making the plays down the stretch to get those wins that we got last year, those one-possession wins, one, two, three-point wins against these teams. And when he went out against Oklahoma State, you felt it. I mean, Nikosi Perry played well in the bowl game, but you feel like if De'Aaron King was in that game, they win that bowl game. So it's it's become this thing where he's been built up to be not only a central focus of the offense, but the central focus of the team, especially with the campaign of let's run it back, I'm coming back for a reason. We got all these guys coming back. He's going to lead the charge. And you even saw it in the game. Like he was trying to do it all, even to his detriment, to his physical detriment, that play where he scrambles in the, in the second half and dives for a first down on fourth, fourth and one or fourth and two and gets just popped. And you could see him grimacing like he was already hurt. And he continues to put his body on the line for this team. And it's a shame that nobody else is giving that kind of effort. I mean, I, I see them playing hard. Um, but they're not playing Derek King level hard. You know what I mean? And it's sad because this guy is literally giving up his body and his well-being to try and push this team forward, and other guys are not responding. Yeah, and, and I think, look, it's easy right now to get caught up in the 30 missed tackles and, and you know, all these other stats affect the offenses, you know, last in scoring in the ACC, uh, you know, the yardage. I think they're 12th out of the 14 teams in the ACC. Like, we can get caught up in all this. But I think fundamentally, when you build a team from the ground up and and you sort of anoint a leader, if that leader is not playing his best or he's coming back from an injury eight months removed from major knee surgery and he's and he's just not as good as you need him to be. I think it it has a negative effect on everybody else. And, And I guess that's why I mean, look, maybe again, it's it's looking at things too deeply, right? Trying to analyze it too deeply. But I think. You know, when you think about this five game stretch, I mean, Derek didn't play well against North Carolina either. And then he gets hurt against, uh, you know, Oklahoma yep. State in the bowl game. They, he didn't play well in the beginning of that game and they and they fell behind 21 nothing. Um, you know, Alabama right off the gate, you know, he's getting popped. He, it, it just again, when we when we sit here a year from now, two years from now, we look back at the Manny Diaz era and say, well, what went wrong? Where did things break? I feel like this is going to be a much bigger story. I feel like I'm the only one talking about this, too. Nobody else is really writing about this or talking about this. Uh, but I feel like it's an important issue because at some point, you're only as good as your best player if you make the entire team about that. And I think that's what Manny Diaz has done. And, and, and you know, if, if things are going to get back on track, man, they need somebody else to step up. Somebody messaged me tonight. Uh, who says that they think Derek might be done for the season? I wouldn't be surprised. And and you know the shoulder separation or whatever, however bad the grade is, uh, he wasn't at practice today. Um, you know, I, I, for sure he's not going to play this week. I can't see any way, shape, or form that you would play that guy this week against Central Connecticut State. But I I think tomorrow and in the days ahead, we're going to be talking about what the hell do you do now for the rest of the season? Because yes, everybody wants to fire the coach. They want to fire the athletic director and hire Mario Cristobal right now to come in and fix everything. 
But that's that's living in an entirely different world. And we'll get to those subjects in a second. But I think right now it's a good time to talk about how do you fix this the short term if the air comes back and then if he doesn't come back. Let's let's assume for a second he does come back a month from now. Right. That's not going to be anytime soon, I don't think. Let's just assume it's a month, two weeks, whatever. He's, he's back for the second half of the season. Let's just conservatively say he's back for the second half of the season. Can Miami survive beating Virginia, Virginia at home, North Carolina on the road, and potentially Pittsburgh on the road? Those three big ACC games. Um, could Miami survive that without Derek King in your mind? Okay, so I think one of the things we saw Saturday against Michigan State is reminded me a little bit of the Brock Berlin situation down here. Um, Larry Coker tried as hard as he could to make Brock Berlin play under center and play in a pro-style offense. And Brock Berlin just wasn't comfortable doing that as much as he tried. And until they got him in the shotgun, every time they did, usually in late-game situations against Florida, Louisville, all these teams, he started to light people up. And finally they realized – Maybe, just maybe, we should do what makes Brock comfortable so we could score points. I think on Saturday what you saw was Derek King hasn't been comfortable running RPOs. He hasn't been great at making those decisions. He hasn't been comfortable running zone read. He never ran it at Houston. But what he did do was drop back, swing the ball over the field in the spread, and also run play action, normal play action, not RPOs or zone reads, and tear teams apart that way, and then use his legs when he needed to. And we saw him do that. I think Rhett Lashley did a good job of going away from the RPOs and try to make Derek comfortable, and it started to work, although Derek made some bad decisions later in the game. But still, he, he had opportunities to make plays. And I think now, if Derek is out for a significant period of time, whether it be two, three, four, five weeks, Rhett Lashley is going to have to tailor the offense to Tyler Van Dyke if it's going to be him. And if he doesn't step up, Jake Garcia, if it's going to be him, whoever it is, he's going to have to tailor that offense to the skills that he has at quarterback and the weapons that he has around him. I think if Derek's out for a little while, it may actually force Lashley to be more creative on offense and scheme up more than just relying on Derek King every damn play, because it's it's impossible to ex- to expect Derek to last a full season when he was what first in the team in carries against App State, and again this week he had about the same amount of carries as Cam. I mean, it's it's impossible to think he would last a season that way. Yeah, they're not even trying to run the ball. And I, and I think, you know, to a certain extent, that's been because of the issues that they've had on the offensive line, right? There's not enough physicality. Those guys aren't getting uh, their hands on guys and, and pushing them out of the way and creating running lanes. I think the other part of it is Cam Harris. It, yeah. This isn't the system built for him, right? These no. delayed handoffs where he's getting the ball and, and defensive linemen are already in his face. Um, yeah, it, it, it's going to be really interesting to me when we find out tomorrow how long Derek is out or what the situation is with him, how Rhett Lashley um, sort of redoes this offense because Tyler Van Dyke can't run the, the same system the Eric King was trying to run. Jake Garcia can't do it. The RPO is not going to work with those guys. They need to be in a shotgun offense where they do hand the ball off and it's productive sort of runs. And, and, you know, Rhett did talk about that this week about, you know, maybe there has to be more designed runs. He was asked about it, certainly. Um, but, you know, the way they're playing right now uh, through these first three games where everything falls on Derek's shoulders, um, you know, it, it just it, it hasn't been working out. And, and had he not been hurt, I, I mean, that's part of the reason I wrote that column is at what point do you change your philosophy when when you just keep running the same stuff and it ain't happening? 
Absolutely. And I think, listen, I, I don't necessarily know that Tyler Van Dyke and Jake Garcia can't run RPOs because remember, there's a difference between RPOs and zone read offense, right? When you're doing a zone read, you're basically reading a backside defensive end or a frontside defensive end, and the quarterback is either giving or pulling based on what that person does or whoever it is you're reading. With an RPO, it's a run-pass option, meaning you can hand it off or you could throw it, and you're basically looking at two levels of defense. You're first looking at a defensive lineman and then a player at the second level if you pull that ball to throw it either on a slant or whatever the case may be. So it's a multiple read thing. So if these guys ran that in high school, it doesn't necessarily mean they have to be a mobile quarterback, a guy that runs a lot. But it is it has to be multiple decisions that they make and reading the defense in that sense. I'm, Are they I'm comfortable doing fewer, it? I don't know. I'm off for fewer decisions for these guys. Right. I mean, <laughs> and, and and I think Lashley's on point with having more designed runs because the problem with RPOs is your offensive linemen are essentially not run blocking per se. They're stepping forward almost uh, as a half run block and then waiting to see what happens. With a designed run, these guys know exactly what they got to do. Okay, I'm pulling here. I've got this guy when I come around. I kick out the first guy or I loop around and get the linebacker, whatever the case may be. And they've got their assignments ingrained in their head and they are run blocking in their mind. So that's a different mentality when you're running the ball. And I think that may help. Also, I'm tired of seeing Cam Harris go down on first contact. Um, this guy is the only dude I've seen in my life that looks like a bowling ball. Is built like a truck. And if somebody breathes on him, he goes down automatically. This guy reminds me of this old saying that an old uh, friend of mine, George Zagales, who coaches at Archbishop Carroll, used yeah. to say all the time, looks like Tarzan, plays like Jane. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Well, it's interesting because we've made such a big fuss about the missed tackles, and rightly so. They're the worst tackling team in the country right now with 66 uh, missed tackles in three games, a 22-game average. And we're going to get to what you want to get to later when we break down the defense a little bit more. But... If you look at Miami, you know, from from the way that they're running ball, running the ball and, you know, in terms of making guys miss uh, 11 missed tackles forced. I mean, that's literally you got 66 missed tackles 
And this is just from the running game. 66. I mean, Walker had more than that on Saturday, didn't he? He had 20. Walker had 20 missed tackles. Right now, in the run game, Cameron Harris has five missed tackles forced. De'Eric King has five. And Don Chaney Jr. has one. I'm going to look at receiver here just for a second. I'm going to try to pull up these grades on Pro Football Focus. Just I know this is what Cal, uh, Kelvin Harris hates. He doesn't want us uh, talking about Pro Football Focus because he hates them so much. He hates numbers. He, need, he hates analytics. But I, I mentioned on my podcast before the Michigan State game that one of the things they needed to do was use the passing game as part of the run game, take what the defense gives them, and the, the receivers needed to get yards after the catch, what they hadn't done all season. Ramble did a great job of that in the first half, and then it went away. Nine missed tackles forced by Miami's receivers. So two for Cameron Harris, receiving five rushing. He's got seven of the 20 missed tackles. Keyshawn Smith has two missed tackles forced, and Mike Harley has two missed tackles forced. So you talk about, you know, Miami creating those moves, right, to, to, to get down the field. You throw the ball underneath. You run the ball. You got to get to that second and third level, right, for those explosive plays. Well, none of these guys are making guys miss. Uh, it just it's it's the facts. It's what it's what's out there. And meanwhile, the other guys on defense, 66 missed tackles. I mean, it's just it's mind boggling how bad they've played. They're lucky to be one and two. If, if Chase Bryce was accurate, Appalachian State's quarterback, they'd be 0 and three right now. Um all right, Carlos, look, I want it. I want we're going to get back to the offense and the defense and break things down a little bit more. But. Everybody wants to talk about the future. What are they going to do with Manny Diaz? Are they going to fire him in the middle of the season? Are they going to wait till the end of the year? He's got two years left on his contract. Um, you also have everybody wanting to get rid of athletic director Blake James. Barry Jackson of the Miami Herald, my former colleague, wrote a, a story where he interviewed a bunch of trustees and people around the program, uh, you know, citing them as, as anonymous sources. And essentially, it's everything that I've been saying for years about Miami's program. Number one, they're not going to spend a lot of money on a head coach um, to replace Manny Diaz, because if you fire him now, you got to pay him eight million dollars to go away. Right. He's got four million per year with this yep. job. Um, and, and then if you're going to go out and bring in a Mario Cristobal, you got to you know, pay him off, do his buyout, which is, I think, over, uh, what is it here, $9 million, something like that. Um, so that's 17. Then you got to pay him probably seven or eight million a year to get him, you know, happy and then pay his assist. I mean, it, it, you could sit here and do the math. Miami has never been a program that spends money on football. And that's a fact. Okay. They just don't. This is a program that used football to get itself into the big leagues in the ACC with all the other academic institutions, they make all their money on TV revenue and, and, and what the ACC shares with them as a power five member. And yes, do they have donors? Yes. They, the Damaris, there's a lot of people who have given this school money, but there's no oil salesman, right? There's, they, they don't, is there any it's oil in Texas, bro? The same Texas. Like the, the one guy, I have this one friend who keeps telling me, all right, that's it. We got to fire Manny. The, you know, the Lenar people are going to put all his money in and they're going to throw him. That's a big donors. And I was like, bro, why would Lenar throw money in a black hole? Why, why would they do this? Like, do you think Lenar, just because they make all this money, the people that run Lenar are sitting there with uh, $100 bills burning in their pockets saying, I need to fuck a pony up and, and fire this coach and give all this money to the next one. I need to pay this buyout and make sure this happens. Yeah, they love the Hurricanes, but they love money more. Yep. And here's a quote from a UM official to Barry Jackson of the Miami Herald. Gifts at UM are made for research and the medical school and the music school and facilities. We don't have donors who contribute to change the culture of the football program or make a transformational, transformational 
commitment to land an elite coach. That tells you all. I mean, again, I've been saying this for years, but now Barry Jackson puts out this report and it's in clear writing for you. Um, so whatever ideas you have in your head of somebody stepping forward, unless somebody like uh, Marcus uh, Limonis, who is on the on the uh, board of trustees and he owns the Camping World uh, Sports, unless a guy like him or some love billionaire. Profit, love a show. Right. It, it's going to have to be a billionaire who really cares and wants to bring a guy like Cristobal home. And I could see uh, Limonis because he's a Columbus guy, right? He has a connection with Cristobal and the whole thing. Yep. But again, this is his decision, whether he wants to do something like that. And again, you know, right. and, and does he want to shell out 20, 30 million dollars to see the Hurricanes uh, compete for a playoff spot? Like, is that really the investment? What's the ROI on that point? And the reason why a lot of these guys, these board of trustee members or that, that quote you just said are talking about, yeah, the investments go to these specific schools and to fund these certain things is the funding. The football program doesn't give their degree more prestige. It doesn't earn the alumni more money if they go apply for jobs. What does the school being academically elite does? Right. And, and, and they're more upset right now about being ranked 55th on the U.S. News and World Report and yep. Florida State being, what, 56 right behind them? Or they're I, right I can guarantee you as, as an attorney, I can guarantee you they're more pissed off about FIU having a higher bar passage rate than they do, than they are about the way the football teams play. Right. And, and here's the thing that people have to understand. This isn't anything brand new. Like, this has been going on since before college football started making serious money. Like, go back to the 80s and 90s, right? When Miami, well, Tad, Tad Foot wanted to make it the Harvard of the South, remember? Right. And, and, and just go back to the 80s and 90s, right? I mean, how much did they pay for Jimmy Johnson? How much did they pay for Dennis Erickson? It wasn't like life-changing money for those coaches. Now that everybody's on TV and you have all this TV revenue, other schools are spending a boatload of money. And, and you know, Miami is still a private school. I, look, I'm not saying that Miami doesn't have the money. They could get the money. The whole point is that quote that I just read you. They're not going to spend it on football. That's what you need to get through your head. So if Miami's going to have a success story, okay, it's going to be what Jimmy and Dennis did and, and, and Howard, where they came in here, they recruited the shit out of South Florida and, and Florida. They had really good assistant coaches that were under the radar that developed players really, really well, and they surprised everybody. That's what, that's what happened. Now in, in, in this era, you know, the 2000s, 2010, 2021s, I mean, Miami's continued to sort of hire at the same rate, right? I mean, Larry Coker was an uh, assistant coach. Butch Davis was an assistant coach. Um, you know, uh, Al Golden came from, from Temple, but it's not like he was some big-time coach who won a bunch of championships. Yeah, so. Randy Shannon was the first-time first head coach. Re right, and Manny is – I mean, technically he was a head coach for 17 days at Temple, but, he again, he's an assistant. So what does that tell you? That I mean, that is the history of the last 30 years at the University of Miami. That, that is just the way that they have operated. And I, I just for, – for fans who are frustrated, I get it. You want, you want to have this dream that one day this is all going to get fixed. Right. And, and the perfect coach is going to come here. But I think right at the bat, you got to understand that it's not a priority. They got into the ACC. They, they used football to get themselves into the ACC to get that big time money. They're happy with that. They already won their Super Bowl yep. as far as the University of Miami is concerned. So and the only big time coach they've ever hired is Mark Rick. And he was and, coming off and, getting and, booted out by Georgia and he was exhausted. And, and Mark was at the end of his career. He took a discount. Okay. He took a discount. Listen, and, and, and he, let's not forget, everybody's clamoring for Mark Rick now on Twitter. 
everybody that was clamoring is clamoring for Mark Rick right now wanted his ass fired after his last season here. And we're thanking God that he decided to retire instead of having to pay a buyout. Again, I'm not trying to uh, I'm look. I said it when Manny Diaz was hired. I would have preferred that they went after a head coach with experience. That's what I wanted. I wanted somebody who wouldn't make some of these rookie mistakes that he's made. Um, and I wanted somebody who um, would just know what buttons to push to get this thing rolling in the right direction after two decades. It's clear that he's learned on the job. He did it his first year with Dan Enos. It took him a year to figure out we need to change the offense. Then, you know, he learned, hey, I got to change the recruiting department. He did that. Hey, I got to, you know, go and use the transfer portal because some of these players aren't very good. He did a good job of that. He's just not winning right now. And I think a big part of that is players letting him down. Will Mallory, uh, Mike Harley. um, I mean, you could go down the list of guys who have just not played well. And, And so while it's easy to just say fire Manny Diaz, replacing him with what you want is the harder problem. And yep. again, unless Mario Cristobal comes with a cape to save the day, I mean, I just think uh, this, you know, <laughs> the next hire will be the same type of thing. It, it'll probably they'll probably to appease the fan base, hire some guy out of the Mac or some guy out of the Sunbelt Conference. And, and that'll be it. And that'll be the move. It'll be a head coach who won in, in, in a average conference who they hope can come in here and turn things around. And again, look. There's and it's no- not easy. Look at Scott Satterfield in Louisville. Right. It's not easy. It's not. And, you know, Manny, for, for all his flaws that everybody wants to point out, and, and you know, I, I, the one thing you have to give him credit for is he does care. He does. This does matter to him. This isn't like just some BS job. Uh, he took this job and he wants to do it the right way. And, you know, I don't see him just throwing his hands up in the air and saying, screw it. We're, we're, we're done for the year. Like he's not acting like a coach like that at all. He's trying to get things fixed. And I think for, for the fans at some point here, you just got to like accept that if there's going to be changes, it's probably not going to happen until the end of the year and don't set your expectations high. Unless I think there's, there's a couple things, right? I, I've been saying for a long time on this podcast that Manny Diaz is the most self-aware coach we've had recently, right? Because Al Godin failed to make a move with D'Onofrio and it cost him his job and it cost him probably a long tenure here in Miami. Um, so we've seen him be self-aware in the off season. Now it's time to see Manny be self-aware in season. I think he has a good understanding of what the issues are on this team. And I think he has a good understanding of how the fan base feels. And I think moving forward, he, he should get this feeling that if these guys that I'm counting on are letting me down, then what I need to do is save my own ass by one, making sure I keep my recruiting class and improve it. And two, by building in an excuse for myself. How do you do that? play all the young guys why because if you end up seven and five eight and four you're like well shit i I finished this way because i was playing all freshmen and sophomores are second year freshmen right redshirt freshmen this is why that happened but when these guys grow up they're going to be a lot better and then you turn around to the recruits and say did you see how many young guys we played you sign with us you're going to get on the field right away don't don't sign with anybody else you want to wait three years to play at alabama you want to wait three years to play at texas a&m or clemson come here play now all right so he could give those sales pitches to the fans and to the uh, to the recruits. The other thing is, I mean, if we sat here before the season, right, before game one, and I told you that the linebackers were going to have issues, yeah, you'd be like, shit, uh, that's understandable. We see that. No problem. 
The offensive line was going to have issues, even though Kelvin kept saying Zion Nelson was going to be a top 15 pick. <laughs> and I kept saying, Kelvin, what are you smoking? Okay, that Flocka is not good for you, but he didn't listen, <laughs> right? We right. would understand because we knew this offensive line was dog shit. But if I told you that Mike Harley, Mallory, Bubba Bolden, Gervin Hall, well, maybe I believe that, Gervin Hall, and Derek King were all playing subpar and costing you games, you would have been like, you're crazy. That's not going to happen, right? Right. And, and that's what, that's exactly what's happened. And, and you know, they've been let down. And, and I will say this, okay, to defend some of the fans' criticisms of the coaching staff. Where, where, you, where you have to blame the coaches is adjustments. And, you know, you look at the first half, for instance, on Saturday. It's sort of a perfect example for the defense. They were shutting down Michigan State's run, right? The, the offense wasn't able to do much. Yes, Michigan State had a 10-7 to 7 lead. But Kenneth Walker was not just stampeding all over them, certainly not in the middle of the field. So they had the right defensive approach early. But what happened after halftime? What did Michigan State do? We're going to start running screens left and right. We're going to move your guys around. We're going to hit the perimeters, and we know we're going to beat you there. And it's up to Manny Diaz as defensive coordinator at some point to make some level of an adjustment. And I know that's not easy to do in the middle of a game. You know, after half at halftime, you can talk to the kids. You can make adjustments. But – that's an indictment on him. That's an indictment on him as a coach, and we've seen that happen to him before. And Rhett Lashley, the same thing, right? Defenses make adjustments. Uh, one, one thing I'll point out, uh, I've yet to see a defense look surprised at any Miami play call this year, correct or wrong, on offense? No, you're right. And, and I heard you mention that on the Big O Show today, that uh, you know last year Lashley schemed up a bunch of touchdowns for this offense, but this year it hasn't happened. And I think it goes back to what you're saying with the over-reliance on Derek King. And also, the other thing is they're trying to pull the same rabbit out of the hat that they did last year to, to sneak up on teams. And these guys have now had a full offseason to watch film of everything you did and prepare and practice. You're not going to catch people off guard. Like, I think it was App State. We tried to run the fake quarterback draw, drop back and hit Mallory in the middle of the field. And that shit was completely covered. And you see App State's coach on the sideline yelling and pumping his fist saying, yeah, we knew that was coming. Right. Like you have to do different things. You have to scheme different things up. And sometimes, you know, necessity is the mother of invention and innovation. Lashley now without Derek King is going to have to strap it on and figure out how he gets points. Because if he doesn't, then we're going to start seeing goose eggs. Yeah. And, and the schedule is going to get tougher. Although according to pro football focus, Miami's remaining schedule is the 30, third easiest in college football, according to your research, correct? That is well, according to my Twitter account. Yeah. <laughs> that's what, that's what PFF tweeted out now, um, now i will say espn's power index predicts miami to finish six and six all right um here's a couple that we can look at the acc a little bit in here and discuss some of some of the opponents virginia's offense has looked very very good brennan armstrong the quarterback that i was very high on before the season that people were laughing at me saying you're an idiot uh has looked really really good for them that was kelvin for the most part right this kid has uh they scored 39 points they lost 59 39 their biggest issues are on defense, which is good for Miami. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> they're, they're, what they also create is uh, issues for you on defense with missed tackles and so forth. So if, if Brennan Armstrong comes in here and he's a dangerous two-way threat, Miami could very much lose that game. And I know we're skipping past Central Connecticut State, but we all know that Miami should win that game, right? Um, oh, God. And, and hopefully convincingly, right? Um, and then after that, you've got the two weeks off before North Carolina, which is going to be to me. I mean, I still look at those guys as the, the, the favorites to win the division. I know 
Uh, Virginia Tech just lost at West Virginia, and they and they beat them to start the year. But I still think Sam Howell and and Mac Brown. I still think they're the favorites to win. So that's going to be a really tough game for Miami to win. On the road to Pittsburgh, not easy either. Even though Pittsburgh just lost to Western Michigan. Um, the other the other observation, Clemson. I mean, they they lose one of their best defensive players. Offensively, they're struggling. I know everybody's looking ahead like, oh, if we can just win the division, this could be the year that Miami beats Clemson. Um, maybe. I, but but right now, if I'm a Miami fan, I'm just trying to get past Central Connecticut, stayed healthy and looking better offensively going into that Virginia game. Because I, I think, you know, six and six, I could see seven and five, maybe even eight and four. Um, but but I don't see anything above that the way they're playing right now. Oh, yeah. They're, the way they're playing right now, I think you're looking at six and six, seven and five. Um they've got to make improvements across the board. And I think the mentality needs to shift now because everybody came in with all these expectations. I think that's the other thing why everybody's pissed off. It's because they came in with these expectations for this team with all these guys coming back, believing that coming off of last year, they would make another jump and push forward to an 11-1, and 10-2 season, be competitive against Alabama, maybe lose to North Carolina, but lose tough and get in the ACC title game. Well, we're not there. And the expectations need to be tempered. And change right now. It's NCA March Madness mode. Survive and advance. Right <laughs> every week, it's going to be a dogfight. It's going to be a nail biter, and you have to advance and survive. And to be quite honest, I, I looked at the schedule, and there's only, let's say, one, two, maybe three games that that you could probably say, all right, I'm feel I feel comfortable. So FSU, even though it's a rivalry game, they, they look terrible. I think they have a shot there. Duke, they should beat. Even though Georgia Tech gave Clemson all they can handle, Georgia Tech is not very good this year. So that's three games that I think they're okay. Virginia is going to be one hell of a tough game because, like you said, Brennan Armstrong's playing very well, and their offense is very good. Um, if they could score on that defense, which is not very good, then they have a shot. But Virginia is going to do the same thing that App State and Michigan State have done, which is Virginia's calling card against Miami. They're going to go quarters. They're going to play off the ball. They're going to make you grind it out and not try and give up big explosive plays. So where does Miami find those explosive plays? They got to figure it out because they even last year they didn't figure it out. They didn't score a lot of points against Virginia. So let's see what happens. I mean, I think they get uh, demolished by North Carolina. Hopefully not. Hopefully they, they lose in a shootout. But right now it's not looking likely. And, um, you know, NC State, that's another team that's got a pretty good offense. That's another dangerous game. I'm not sure what's going to happen there. I think they can beat Pitt, um, but I'm not 100% sold. So we'll see, man. I mean, it all, again, it all depends on – what this team does moving forward, how do they correct the issues that they're having? And what are the, what are the main issues then that they are having that need to get fixed to be able to have a shot to finish a season eight and four, nine and three. Well, one tackling, like we talked about two, they've got to stop the stupid drive killing penalties that have killed them the first three games of the season. Um, they've got to have their, their playmakers make plays and catch the football and the defensive playmakers make plays and they've got a run block, man. It's, it's just that simple. It's, it's not a lot of things. It's not like complicated shit. Block, catch, and tackle. And do something. <laughs> the old Willie Tiger thing. Do something. 
And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, um, I, I will say this. Um, I think the tackling is going to get better. And, I, and you asked me before we, we started recording this episode, you said, how bad have Manny Diaz's defense been at missed tackles? Right now, they're averaging 22 missed tackle, tackles a game. Since he got here in 2006, I have the totals for you. Nine and a half tackles his first season per game. Nine, missed nine and a half tackles. They had one, two, three, four, five, six. They had five. Uh, double-digit missed tackle games. The worst was against North Carolina. They had 18 against them and 17 against Virginia Tech, all right? Um, in 2017, they averaged 11.2 missed tackles per game. They had 18 missed tackles against FSU, uh, 14 against Georgia Tech. I mean, they had a lot of double-digit tackle missed games. So even in 17, when they were great, uh, great for their standards, right? 10 and 3, <laughs> and and in the ACC championship game, they, they averaged 11 missed tackles a game. In 2018, uh, when they had actually their best defense, they only averaged 88.8 uh, missed tackles a game. So that was the key. Why were they so great on defense? Well, uh, you had Gerald Willis uh, creating yep. a bunch of havoc, and then you you weren't missing tackles in the secondary. You had a veteran secondary that wasn't making mistakes. That's not what's yep. happening now. Uh, 2019, they averaged 10.1 missed tackles, and that number was badly skewed because they had 30 versus Georgia Tech in that game that they lost where they couldn't kick a field goal. Okay, so they had 30 missed tackles against Georgia Tech that year. If not, you take away that game. There were only three other games where they had 10 or 11 missed tackles. They were below that. That was uh, Shaq and 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 Pinckney's uh, senior year where they both played. Uh, people criticize them, but they weren't missing a lot of tackles. And then last year, 2020, they averaged 10 and a half missed tackles per game. Their worst was the 24 missed tackles in the North Carolina route. So you ask me, how, how is this? For you know, uh, par for the course for these with the way they're tackling. No, they're they're averaging double the amount that they normally do. If you if you look at the numbers, they average nine, ten, or eleven missed tackles a season. So it's gonna get better. They're gonna there's gonna be a return to the mean in some way, um, and I think part of it is gonna have to be strategy. Because somebody messaged me on Twitter asking me today um, a question about run blitzes and you know how many times are they sort of overrunning the play. When you look at the film, Carlos, what do you see as a, as a former high school quarterback of, of, of what they're doing defensively that's killing them? Well, being a former high school quarterback really doesn't qualify me to uh, <laughs> say anything regarding any sort of thing, anything schematic. But, yeah, I, what I've seen in the film the first three games, because, as you know, I'm a nerd and I obsess and I watch the games over and over again after it happens, um, is the linebackers are not instinctive, right? Specifically, Corey Flagg is better – than than uh than Steed and he's better than 
um, Keontre Smith at it at diagnosing plays, but specifically Wayman Steed sits there, sees a down block, and when you see a down block, you are supposed to react a certain way as a linebacker. You are supposed to fill that gap, and you under, or if it goes zone away from you, you're supposed to trail and make sure nothing come back, cuts back against you, right, and be the second man in. They're not doing that. They're just sitting there and waiting for things to happen. They're reacting instead of reading the, def- the offense and making plays. What was great about Shaq and, and Pickney was those guys knew what was happening as soon as they saw it. They would diagnose things quickly and go make plays. Sometimes they get there and miss a tackle. Rarely it happened. The other thing they would do is sometimes go in the wrong gap, but they were constantly making aggressive mistakes. The thing that these linebackers are doing is they're not making aggressive mistakes. They're making mistakes because they're passive. And that comes to a lot of that happens because they don't know what they're doing. Um, I think Corey Flagg does for the most part. But, you know, Steed doesn't look like he's comfortable unless, like that a Twitter question, he's run blitzing. If you notice, most of the plays that Wayman Steed made were on blitzes and on run blitzes. He never just goes, fills a gap when he reads, he diagnoses something. As a matter of fact, he normally just backpedals out there until an offensive lineman hits him. Or until he says, oh, shit, there's the ball. And then he goes to try and get it. and It's too late. Yeah. So, I mean, that's an indictment on Manny and and, and not recruiting the kind of linebackers to get ready to, to play in those positions. Avery Huff is another example. He finally got a chance to play some uh, in this game. But guys that have to know what they're doing, right, and trust what they're doing and right. stay where they're supposed to be. And, and want to fill the gaps and want to go on there and be physical. And I think the other thing that you're seeing with the defense is, beyond that linebacker level, that second level in the secondary, you are not getting the help and run support that you should be getting. Gervin Hall is not coming up and hitting dudes. Once they get past the, the, the three or four yard mark past the linebackers, Bubba Bolden comes in there flying like a missile with his head down all the time. And sometimes he makes a tackle. Sometimes he whiffs because he's coming in there without even seeing what the hell he's doing. He just right. launches himself like a missile and tries to hit everybody in the legs. And the defensive tackles have been inconsistent. You saw Nesta play a great uh, fourth quarter against App State last week and be disruptive, and you saw the difference that made for the defense. But this week, he was nowhere to be found. And to be able to be a good defense, you have to start from the middle backwards. You have to be better at the defensive tackles where they create disruption and make it hard for the offensive linemen to get to the second level and block your linebackers so your linebackers are free to come in and make plays and your secondary players are behind that to make sure if somebody misses a tackle, they're there to clean it up. Now, the third thing that they're, they're messing up and they're not doing well is they're getting no pressure from the edges, right? They're only getting to the quarterback sometimes with, with blitzes. And even then, there are times when you saw against Michigan State, they brought blitzes and Michigan State just you know, fanned it out, blocked it, and nobody got to the quarterback. And that's happened for three weeks. They can't get to the quarterback even on blitzes. And that's a problem. And I think a big change needs to happen in terms of how they get pressure and how they create chaos up front. And, you know, to me, I was reading this on Twitter and it was surprising to me that, you know, uh, Chance Williams' snaps were cut in half compared to the Alabama game. He's gotten less snaps every game. And I don't understand how because that kid's the best defensive end we got right now. Yeah, he, he's made plays in all three games for Miami. Um, and and it's kind of, it is kind of baffling. You'd hope he'd start to get some more work. I guess they feel like Zach McLeod is, is helping them on run stops or is maybe the guy who sets the edge the best uh, as far as – um, you know, defensive ends. Um, I, I, I'm going to throw out the stats here just because I, I looked this up for my story, but Miami's leaders in missed tackles this season to Corey Couch, Wayman Steed with seven each, uh, Gervin Hall, Bubba Bold, and Amari Carter with six each. Uh, Keontra Smith, who's obviously out, won't be back at least until the North Carolina game of the earliest. Keontra Smith has four. 
Corey Flagg, Tyreek Stevenson, and Jordan Miller and Gilbert Frierson and McLeod have three missed tackles each. By the way, Jawan Mitchell, the kid uh, that Miami was, was sort of flirting with from Texas, the one that they wanted to get um, mm-hmm. and, and ultimately decided to pass on. Uh, he's played in two games, uh, 10 tackles, one missed tackle. So, you know, he's the guy that they could have had that brought in here that would have been the veteran to help out. In the end, Manny Diaz passed on him for whatever reason. He's playing in Tennessee in two games. He's got 10 tackles, one missed tackle. Um, and, and I think uh, Zach McLeod doesn't have more missed tackles because you actually have to be around the ball to miss a tackle. So that, that might be the problem with the McLeod numbers. All right. Um, all right. So, uh Offensively, we, we've talked a lot about defense. Um, and, you know, today, uh, Tavares Robinson defended the honor of Gervin Hall in that ridiculous play, saying, you know, Miami's not soft. Um, so and the funny thing is, when he was doing that, you, you heard the Peter Cetera song in the background. I am the man who will fight for your honor. <laughs> um, so what I wanted to say here is, uh defensively i think the back end to me honestly has been the more frustrating part of all this because of the breakdowns in the secondary um and and it just feels like a lot of the mistakes have been made by those guys and tonight inside the u by the way reported that it looks like uh gervin hall is going to be benched that uh that he will be replaced by either james williams or cam kitchens and according to our insider Kelvin Harris, it'll be Cam Kitchens who starts because he plays free safety and James plays strong safety, according to uh, Kelvin. Um, so we'll if see. If that's ha- true, if that's true, then again, this is what I'm talking about with Manny becoming being self-aware and knowing he needs to make moves because Gervin Hall has been atrocious this season. Yeah, he has. Um, in terms of missed tackles, no, no doubt. And, and well, he's covered- been shit in the second. He's been shit in coverage too. I mean, don't, that that slant that Jaden Reed finally caught at the end of the game. Um, he was staring right at him. Literally, if Gervin Hall just attacks the ball like he's supposed to, he could have maybe had a pick six going the other way, but he just lets the guy catch a slant because I don't know what he's looking at. And then the week before against App State, he's not over the top like he's supposed to be, and that deep post that he caught for a touchdown was on him. Correct. Um, I'm looking at the coverage numbers because those are always good numbers to sort of review. And according to this, Tyreek Stevenson uh, has given up nine catches but on 19 targets. Uh, Amari Carter, 10 catches on 13 targets and Gervin Hall, eight catches on 10 targets. Um, Stevenson beat twice for touchdowns now, although he's got three pass breakups. I think really Tyreek's the only guy who's played halfway decent in the secondary, correct? He has, he has. And I think that, that, that play where he got beat for the touchdown, I think he was exhausted, man. Yeah. I think he was the only guy out there really giving effort in that secondary. And at some point he just ran out of gas, got caught on the double move and was like, Oh shit, here it goes. Right. Um, I'm, what, what are the numbers on Frierson? Because I, I'm tired of Amari Carter. Um, he's no fun anymore because he's not getting ejected and I can't make fun of him. Now he plays the whole game, and now I'm wishing he gets ejected. Gilbert Frierson has played as many snaps as Chance Williams, 81 snaps. Um, <clears throat> Fryer, uh, Carter has played 168. He's fourth on the team in snaps. It's Gervin 1, 210 snaps. To Corey Couch, 2, 183 snaps. Tyreek Stevenson, 3, 174 and then Carter, 168, Bolden next with 162. They really, I mean, they've played five guys in the secondary most of the season. Like, and, 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 and Ivory, um, he's got 86 snap. He's the worst. He's, I think he's ranked 103rd out of 106 uh, DBs in the ACC right now, according to P- PFF. So, I mean, the secondary, for, for all the excitement about T-Rob, right? And, and, hey, they got veteran guys back. 
uh, it, it just hasn't, it hasn't panned out well for those guys. Unfortunately, maybe, maybe there's a way that they turn it around here. I don't know. Uh, I, I don't Listen, have man, any, to me, one of the things that's shocking to me is that Frierson's not getting more snaps because I thought he was the most consistent player on defense last year. Right. And, 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 and go ahead. I was going to say Manny Diaz has said he wanted more physicality at the striker position, which is why Carter is playing. Well, I mean, physicality compared to what? Because this, I thought Frierson was pretty physical, but I mean, Amari Carter is out there getting <laughs> getting lost in the wash. He had one big play against App State, and after that, he's he's done absolutely nothing. Um, I, and he's and he's also not very physical coming up because he's afraid to get ejected because he doesn't know how to hit people normally. <laughs> Well, let, let me ask you this. Let's raise this topic up, and then we'll wrap up the show here. Do you think taking on the defensive coordinator role has been too much for Manny Diaz to handle? The question was raised this week um, by my colleague, Kobe Price, from the Sun Sentinel. He asked Manny essentially that question. Do you think you know, Manny has any regrets over taking on double duty? Listen, I, I don't think it's too much if you've got the right setup. So Jimbo Fisher has been doing this for years. Other coaches have done it for years. Um, most prefer to delegate and, and just be the CEO type. But Manny decided to take this back on, and he was a good defensive coordinator when he was a DC. The thing you need to have in place is you have to have a guy that will help you game plan because you have to split your time up amongst meetings and make sure everything's running smoothly and, and have the, the top end of the program uh, organized. And the other thing you need to do is have that same guy do the corrections on the sideline while you're monitoring the game as a head coach. So if you don't have a guy that's your right-hand man that can help you game plan, help you do the install, and then help make corrections on the sideline, then you're, you're at a disadvantage and then it's not going to work out. So I don't know what system they have going on, but if they don't have somebody that's sitting with these players on the whiteboard as the game is going on and making corrections, then they're going to have a long season because that's critical. As you were talking about making adjustments in-game. Every time a team comes off the sideline after a series, whether they score or they give up a score or they don't or they get a stop, they always sit around and talk about what happened on that last series and what the other team is doing and how they can counter that. But if they don't have somebody doing that, then that's a problem. Yeah, and and I don't know that they do. I don't know how much Ed Reed is around. Everybody's like, oh, Ed Reed, he should be fixing all these things. You know, I, this is not that kind of job for Ed Reed. You know, he's got another life. He is a uh, advisory board member, you know, basically he, he chips in his two cents when he wants. He's not a coach. He's not there to coach and be that heavily involved. Um, and from the offensive side of things, just we'll, we'll, we'll wrap up with that really quick. Um, what do you do this week, especially with Derek probably not playing? What, do you do you make more of an effort to just establish a running game? That's what I would. I would run the ball 60 times in this game. Yes, you want your quarterbacks to get some work as well. But I really think let's, let's build some confidence up, even if it's central Connecticut state, like let's just block people and move the football. I mean, I think you give guys opportunities. I think that's the first thing you need to do on offense, right? What, if you want to be balanced, if you want to be, you know, heavier on one side or the other, I think Lashley needs to go in there and get this team, like you're saying, some confidence moving forward. And that includes the quarterback. So if you're going to go in there, and just hand it off 60 times and let Tyler Van Dyke throw it 10 times, I don't think that's going to work. You need to get that guy ready for the remainder of the season, and you need to do the same thing with Jake Garcia when he gets in there. you got to have these guys throw the ball and make reads as if they were going to be there the rest of the season having to do that. Um, I think the other thing you need to do moving forward past Central Connecticut State is you need to be more creative in the way you get the ball to your playmakers and get more playmakers in the game. So, for one, I was extremely disappointed last this past week that Restrepo didn't get 
more balls thrown his way or get more snaps. I don't know how many snaps he got. It seemed to me like he got less than he did against App State. He might have. I don't have the exact numbers right. in front of me. I can. I'll. I'll. I'll go ahead. You can you keep carrying the conversation. The kids. The kids a playmaker, and every time he touches the ball, he makes a play. Um, Brashard Smith got one carry on that end around. He showed how fast he is. That kid needs more touches because that's an explosive player. When Jalen Knighton comes back, he's going to need touches because he's an explosive player, a difference maker. Um, Rambo needs to keep getting the ball. We need to find ways to get the ball to Keyshawn Smith, um, either down the field or the same way we're getting into Rambo. You need to get Elijah Royal on the field because that guy has, has had the ball thrown to him two or three times, and he's actually caught it and made plays with it. So this is what needs to happen. It doesn't need to be overcomplicated. You just need to get these guys the ball in space and let them work, which when you saw what that happened on Saturday with Rambo, it paid off. And then all of a sudden we forgot how to do it. By the way, I, I really think Cody Brown needs to be given a really good look in this game because, first of all, you can't play Cameron Harris 88 snaps like you did in last game. No. Um, he he needs to, Franklin needs some too. Yeah, they, they need they need some pass protection uh, situations um, and they need to be able to get some carries because, by the way, when Jalen Knighton comes back, he hasn't been practicing all this time, right? When you're suspended, you're not allowed to practice. So uh, he's going to have to, you know, and, and it's a short week. On, I know everybody's like, oh, he'll be back for Virginia. Yeah, it's not going to be like Jalen Knighton's ready to just go in there and start and, and you know, carry the offense game one. It's going to take him a while to get back in shape. Avante Williams just got back and is doing things uh, with the team this week that, that we were able to spot him on the field. So, by the way, Xavier Restrepo, uh, 35 snaps against Michigan State and Alabama, only 16 against App State. So there you go. Oh, look, there we go. Yeah, but his targets, I, I mean, and I get what you're getting at. I mean, he, he, he was targeted five times against Alabama, twice against App State, once against Michigan State. So there yeah, you go. That, there needs to be more targets for that kid, especially if Mike Harley is dropping the ball. Correct. Carlos, I am not going to this week's game. I'm going up to Jacksonville to be with my brother who's here from California, visiting my, my parents who were up there and my brother. So I got a little family re reunion, but I will be watching the game on, on my computer and following it and filing a story from up there. What are you doing for this weekend? I mean, and how empty is this stadium going to be on Saturday? Wow. Um, I think it might look like a Marlins game is, uh, is my thought. So I'm, I, you know, I'm not going to the game. Uh, I'll be watching in the comfort of my own home and uh, maybe even starting the game late, which is rare for me because I like to do a pregame tailgate at the house and then watch the game on time. I'll probably be catching it later on on the DVR. Um, my hope is that they, they look good in this game, good enough to gain some confidence going into Virginia. And then fingers crossed, we'll see what happens. Yeah, I I, uh, I agree. I think they, they cruise. And by the way, this uh, Central Connecticut State team, they've got four guys from Florida and their quarterback, Romello Williams, went to Miramar High School, 6'1", 185 pounds. So far this season, let me look at his numbers, uh, 581 yards, passing five touchdowns. Uh, so, you know, I mean, it is a South Florida kid coming home to play. You never yeah, know. I mean, and every time a South Florida kid comes to play at Hard Rock, they, they end up kicking our ass. So hopefully this kid <laughs> does not do that. I call it the Willie Burton effect. Um, Willie Burton got traded from the Heat, came down and scored 56 on him, getting scored 56 his entire Heat career. And it happens every time to the Hurricanes. I, I hate to see it. Right. Well, let's, uh, let's hope they come out healthy and that uh, when we come back next week and talk about Virginia, uh, we hear some positive news. It would suck if De'Aaron King is, is seriously injured. Again, that's just a rumor that I heard tonight. We'll find out uh, tomorrow uh, morning when Manny Diaz meets with us. I'm sure we'll get some sort of response here. But uh, 
it'll be interesting times ahead, man. Uh, but uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't hang your hat on somebody getting fired anytime soon. I don't think that's going to happen. So, Carlos, yeah, Carlos, thanks for everything. Once again, make sure the, to follow. You want to give him your uh, Twitter address and, and again, plug the, the, the uh, podcast. Sure. The podcast is the MIA all day podcast. And uh, I rarely use a Twitter handle for that unless I'm putting out like a podcast episode. But it's MIA all day pod. And my personal uh, Twitter handle, it's Eledo1307, which is E-L-L-E-D-O-1307. All right, that's going to do it this week. No fancy interviews with anybody famous or anything like that. No other uh, beat writers coming on. Just me and Carlos for you talking raw Canes football before Central Connecticut State. So that wraps it up. We will see you next week. For Carlos Ledo, I'm Manny Navarro from The Athletic. Make sure you subscribe to TheAthletic.com and follow me on Twitter at Manny underscore Navarro. 5-4, 5-6-8, this is the state of Miami, y'all know y'all come down that way.